So uh, over the last week, two um, people, both of whom are not Christians, asked me the same question. Uh, In fact, they asked me the same question and they both put special nuance on the word actually. And here's the question they asked me. So what do pastors actually do? <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's a good question. How, how would they know it? They've never been a pastor. They have no idea. For most people, right, we work one day a week. That's all we do, right, Church? Give me an amen on that. Just kidding. Um, and so that, but, but as I was talking to them, I wasn't frustrated. I'm just like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. And uh, in their brains, some of them had like Seventh Heaven, the TV show, uh, transferred onto me. A lot of them, uh, they're like, one of them said, why aren't you wearing like, uh, you know, the outfit thingy? And I'm like, uh, what is it called? I couldn't even remember what it was called, like the little uh, neck thing. You know, anyways, I'm a pastor and I don't even know what it's called. And uh, I'm like, well, there are different kinds of pastors and I don't really wear those kind of things. And, and uh, just, they started asking me all these questions about what I do and then the Bible. And, and it was interesting because there are some fundamental misunderstandings and then there are crazy pastors, right? And so I'm like, they're trying to figure out, are you one of those crazy guys? And I'm like, I don't think I'm crazy. Uh, do you think I'm crazy? Don't answer that question out loud. And so, uh, so it's interesting, but here's what I, I find, right? Uh, most people do not have a pastor in their life that they know. And the more and more America becomes unchurched, our biblical illiteracy is growing at an exponential rate. If you don't know this, get your head around that because that is one of the impending realities of the next generation that we're trying to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to. And so what you have here is this massive misunderstanding. And and the deeper I dig, here's what I find when I talk to a lot of you. Um, When people meet you and they find out that you're a Christian, oftentimes they're like, I think they might be weird. And then when they hear, like, you're in a weekly Bible study, or you give a regular tithe of how much percent of your income, like some people give 10 or 20 or 30% or more of their money to the local church and to seeing the gospel go all over the world, like, it's just crazy thought. And so here's what we find. The more and more people find out that you're not just a cultural Christian, but they find out that you love the Lord, that you go to church, you love your church, you serve, you build people up, you invest your life into it, you're in a Bible study, you open the word of God on a regular basis, they're gonna think you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I hope you know that. Like, that's part of the new reality that many Christians are experiencing. Um, What I found is is that as soon as people find out that I'm a Christian, let alone a pastor, many of them have a few hot topic cultural subjects that they want to ask me about right away. And uh, and I want to be prepared to talk to them and, and to answer them. But at the end of the day, I have found one massive, huge misunderstanding that is so pervasive that it feels like it is in my kids, it's in our church, let alone on TV, and in almost every single person I talk to. Um, This misunderstanding is actually so core and so central that if you misunderstand this one thing, you actually misunderstand all of Christianity in total. It's so important, it's so central, that like if you don't get this thing, you, whatever you think is Christianity ceases to be Christianity at this point. And what I find is that this lie, this misunderstanding uh, is so deep, it's just everywhere. It's a part of our American cultural language now. And what I wanna do is I wanna tell you what this is and I wanna help us understand how to dismantle this lie and show you from God's word what is actually truth. Now you're probably wondering, what is a lie? You ready for it? It's so simple. Good 
people go to heaven. It's everywhere. It is so everywhere. It is the fundamental basis of every religion on the planet, every faith system, all of them. All fa- you find me a faith system. At its core, this is gonna be what they believe about heaven. There's one exception in all of history to this idea, that is the gospel and biblical Christianity. The gospel teaches us through the word of God, it teaches us actually the complete opposite. You guys, I'm just gonna like plant some like bombs for you here to make you interested, okay? Here's what we say all the time. Good people, according to scripture, they don't go to heaven. Good people go to hell. Forgiven people go to heaven. That fundamental distinction is so, is so counter to every religion. I don't care what basis it has. Every religion and every culture fundamentally will tell you this. Good people go to heaven, but when you open up the scripture, that is not the message of the Bible. Uh, in Matthew chapter five, here's how the Jews of Jesus' day were saying the same thing, but in their own language. Here's what they would say. Good law keepers get into the kingdom of God. That's how they would say it. If you wanna get into the kingdom of God, which is our way of saying getting into heaven, then what you have to do is you have to keep the Old Testament law. You need to keep all these laws, you need to be really good, and the better you are at keeping these laws, the more God will like you, and the better you are, the more God will like you, the better chances you have of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Good law keepers get into the kingdom of God. So turn with me, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. We are in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and here's what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna take the law keepers, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, and he's gonna take them to law school. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna show them how faulty and frail their ideas are and how, by their own logic, if you try to get to heaven by being good, you're gonna utterly fail. Now, here's my question for you before we get into this. Do you want to effectively help your children and your grandchildren know God, know the word of God, and ultimately have a relationship with God that when they die, will get them actually to be with God forever? What's the answer? Yeah, when you deal with kids in village kids, you may not have any kids. When you deal with kids in Awana on Monday nights, when you deal with kids in your neighbor, when you deal with your nieces and nephews, when you're talking to non-Christians, do you wanna be able to help them understand this in a way that builds their relationship with God and helps them actually come into a real relationship with God? The answer, of course, is yes. And if we, every one of us, and I mean everyone in this room, if we cannot simply dismantle the lie replace it with truth, we will fail to communicate the the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. Here's my goal. My goal this morning is to teach you, it is to train you, it's to help you maybe give some practical tools you can use in your home, you can use with non-Christians, you can use maybe with people who've gone to church their entire life. I had a woman come up to me after the first service, say I've been to church 58 years, and that is the first time I've understood the gospel. Think about that. Think about that. So the goal is to give simple, helpful tools so that you can, with helpfulness and power, actually help people understand the gospel, knowing that this will be the light ingrained deep into their soul, into their culture, that will hold them back from truly trusting in Jesus Christ. If you have notes, you can look under point number one, the law 
was made for Jesus. If you have our Village Church app, you can take notes in there. And if you're in a community group, all the questions are gonna be uh, on the Village Church app as well as the back of your notes. Um, so at this time, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a massive misunderstanding about Jesus. The religious leaders of the day perceive Jesus as neglecting the law. Uh, they perceive Jesus as not taking their biblical Old Testament law seriously. And so, uh, for example, they would call him a lawbreaker. So on the Sabbath, he would do these crazy things like pick grain. Or he would go heal somebody on the Sabbath. This is my favorite one. They would look at Jesus and they said, um, why do you neglect the law and you don't wash your hands before you eat? <laughs> right? Like how trite can they get? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus, we don't find him breaking the law. What we find him breaking are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. He is breaking their interpretation of the law. But you will not find Jesus to be a law breaker. And so if I'm Jesus and I wrote the law, do I care at all what the Pharisees and Sadducees think? The answer is no, I'll do whatever I wanna do. Uh, and Jesus knows what he meant when he wrote the law and so Jesus upholds it perfectly. And so the accusation would go something like this. Jesus wants to create anarchy and get rid of the law. Does Jesus want to create anarchy? What is the answer? No. Could Jesus have created legitimate anarchy in this time? Yes. Everything Jesus is doing is to slow down chaos and anarchy. And so this is not his agenda. Verse 17, here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So here's what Jewish teachers would do. If somebody set aside um, even small little aspects of the law, they would say that man or that woman is, quote, abolishing the law, destroying the law is another synonym, making a mockery of the law because they prided themselves in valuing the whole law. And so this is a very common thing that they might say, Jesus, you're abolishing the law. And I imagine Jesus would love to say something like abolish the law. Are you kidding me? I wrote this law. In fact, I have a challenge for you, Pharisee. I am so doubling down on this law that I'm gonna obey every single word and not just ex externally. I'm gonna obey it from the heart. Can you do that, legalistic Pharisee? I'm gonna, every single nuance, I am going to obey without flaw and perfectly. How dare you look at me, the law maker, and say that I am abolishing the law. Here's what he says. He says it again. Uh, I have not come, verse 17, to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. So here's what I wanna do right now. Um, I wanna answer five questions about Old Testament law. And uh, here, here's the reality. Uh, the majority of Christians are, are not able to coherently answer, coherently answer basic questions that non-Christians and your kids have about the Bible, especially about the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament, especially when non-Christians start reading the Bible and they come to you and they say, what is the law? Why don't you eat bacon? Why do you eat bacon? What am I supposed to do with the book of Leviticus? And here, here's the deal. One of the things that every one of you, if you claim the name of Jesus, I want you to be able to do is to know answers to the basic, most basic fundamental questions. If you want to read the New Testament with any level of clarity, you need to have 
a clear head in mind to answer the questions that we're about to pose. So this is a moment where uh, my goal is not to entertain you. My goal is to teach you. So if you want to take notes, this is going to be a great time for you to do that. And I want to answer five questions, and you're going to have to get behind this if you're going to be able to answer basic questions. Here's the first question. What is the Old Testament law? Uh, so very simply, there's a couple meanings to this. <clears throat> the Old Testament law referred to 613 do's and don'ts from the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Um, there were 613 do's and don'ts, and this was called the law. Um, it was also called the Torah. Um, it was a uh, teaching. It was this 613 do's and don'ts. That's one understanding of the word law. So when we refer to Old Testament law, we're referring to 613 laws given in the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, the other way that this word law is used is as a summary word for the first five books of the Old Testament. So when a Jew referred to the word law, he could be referring directly to those 613 commandments, or he could be referring to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, good. That, that would be what the law meant. The law, Old Testament law, has another name. It's called Mosaic law. It's all the same thing. It's called the Mosaic law because God gave the law to Moses. There we go. We're all on the same page. So it's called the Mosaic law. It's called the law, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law. It's got a bunch of different names, but it all fundamentally rever refers to the 613 commandments or the first five books of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament for the Jews at that time were the most sacred of all the writings. And so for them, this was of utmost importance. So when they look at Jesus and they say, you are abolishing the law, what they're saying to him is you are destroying our most sacred texts, you're putting them aside, and you are from the evil one. That's basically what they're accusing him of. Question number two, what are some common facts about Old Testament law that people don't know? I want to share with you a few facts here so that you can at least get your head around them. Last time I checked, the majority of you are not Jewish or with a thick Jewish background. Number one, the law was created by God, not by man. That may sound redundant, but God himself came up with every one of these 613 laws. They were from his heart. They were from his mind. They are holy and righteous because they come from God. Now, uh, you may pick up the book of Leviticus and say, what does this even mean? Why does God care at all what I do with this part of my body or this food? And that's a legitimate question. Now, here's what you need to understand. If you don't understand the meaning of a law, is the problem likely with God or your lack of understanding? Probably it's your lack of understanding, and that's fine, right? Because we all don't know everything, and last time I also checked, we didn't all grow up 4,000 years ago in an agrarian society in the, mid, in the Middle East, right? And so this is a, a law written for tribal groups and tribal cultures. It's a very different law than what we're used to, but it is good, and it is holy, and it's righteous, and it came from the very heart and the mind and the values of God himself. So when you open up Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you have to, when you see laws, do's and don'ts, these are from God, and they are good. Number two, God created the law with Jesus specifically in mind. Jesus didn't show up at like in the first century and be like, I'm gonna obey the whole law. Cool, man, I did it. When God created the law, he created the law so that every part of it would ultimately point people to Jesus. And so when Jesus came, Jesus came to fulfill the law because the purpose of the law was made for him. 
Now, the law has other purposes, but this is the grand point of the law. When God organized every single specific 613 laws, he did it with Jesus in mind. Number three, the Mosaic law was intentionally designed so that people could not be saved by obeying it. God never intended that when a Jew picks up these 613 laws, that they would conclude this. Well, if I can obey most of them better than the person next to me, then I'm gonna have a higher likelihood of getting into the kingdom of God or getting into heaven. They were never designed to get you heaven through obedience. That was never their purpose. So as soon as you start using it for that purpose, then you will miserably fail to understand the purpose of the law. Because God has made it very clear in his word that people do not go to heaven by being good or following good laws or good works. Being a law keeper will never, ever, ever get you into heaven. It will never happen. So when you read the law, most people think that the Jews were like under this thing. If you're good, you get into the kingdom of God, and if you're bad, you don't. It's not the way the law was intended to work. There were curses and there were consequences for behavior, but that's a good disciplinarian like any mom or dad would do. But that's very different than saying, if you do good, I will let you into the kingdom of God. But if you're not a good boy or girl, it's not the way it functions. It's not the way it's supposed to function. But number four, and I think this is really important, the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, had an expiration date built into it. It was never ever intended to be permanent, it was intended to be temporary. It was intended to be temporary for a few reasons, but it was intended to be temporary until Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again from the dead. This law was not supposed to be permanent. In fact, in the Old Testament, regularly it says, there is a new law that is coming and this new law is gonna make the old law not applicable anymore. Now, is it good? Yes, but is it gonna be applicable anymore? No, so if I were to look at all of you in this room and say, are you under the authority of Old Testament law? What is the answer? No, and praise God. And that's why I'm gonna go eat bacon later today because I am not under Old Testament law, right? So seriously, like there, you should be so grateful because it constrained and restrained so many parts of everyday life, but it had a purpose for that culture and that time and that civilization. Ultimately, the purpose was to wait for Jesus. And once Jesus came, the law was gonna find its fulfillment. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. Let's talk about one aspect of this. Um, does... Does the Bible require you right now, does the Old Testament law require you right now to be under the Ten Commandments? Anyone? Okay. Are the Ten Commandments a part of the Old Testament law? Are you under the law? I'm just gonna hang that over your head for a little while, okay? Ready? We're gonna get there, don't worry. Why did God, number three, make the Old Testament law specifically? I want to know what was in God's heart and mind. Does God do aimless things like not on purpose? No, God is always intentional. So when God designed these 613 laws, gave them to this Moses and, and gave them to the people of Israel, what was he trying to do? I'm going to give you a few reasons. Number one, his desire was to bless humanity. His desire was to bless humanity. Galatians 3:19 says, why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions. Because mankind without divine law goes crazy. 
And any law that is given is subjective. So for example, I'm gonna kill you. Well, you can't kill me, why? Because I don't like it. Well, who says that? Who makes the rules? Law is subjective until there is external divine law. Tribal cultures and nationalities were in chaos until God came in and revealed objective morality, truth, and law. Okay, and this is what happens in your home. If there is not an objective law that guides your house, one kid punches another kid and says, you can't punch me, why? Who says? You say I can't? Well, then mom and dad come in, they drop objective law, and they say, you can't punch them because I said so. Stop it, right? And that's what God does. All of humanity is subjective in the way we view right and wrong until God comes in, and he inserts objective law, and he blesses humanity for this. And so what he does is in the chaos and crazy of tribal cultures and empires, this bright shining light of the Jewish people rise up, and how when empires come and go do this little group of people persist for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's something about this law that is a blessing and that when people come near to this law, they thrive as humans. Number, number two, why did God make the Old Testament law specifically? To reveal righteousness and sin. Uh, in the law, you see God's heart you see God's values. If you go into any home, and if there were like a, a, a list of rules, like these are the, uh, uh, the rules of the fueling home, every rule and law we make reveals our values. It reveals our heart. And so whenever you see Old Testament law, what God is revealing to you is who he is. This is why studying Old Testament law is beautiful because God's nature and his character are written on every single mandate given to humanity. Even the restrictions when God says, no, don't do X, Y, or Z, he's doing it because he is increasing human flourishing and he loves to see people live the way he made them to live. Leviticus 20 says this, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, be righteous, be perfect. That's he's saying, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes. How do we know what's holy? How do we know what's righteous? The law shows us this. Uh, number three, this might be something where some of you struggle, but it is. The law was given to increase sin and to amplify grace. Listen, listen to what Romans 5.20 says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So here, here's basically what happens. When I do something dumb and there's no external authority, it's, it just affects me and that person. But when, an, when a lawgiver comes in and uh, gives me a law, now I am all of a sudden guilty and I realize the guilt of what I've done. And what happens when you create law, you now make guilty lawbreakers and then sin increases. And what's happening is that as God gives law to the world, sin is just increasing because when you give law, guess what people who do under law? They break the law, right? You ever give rules to your kids? What do your kids do with almost every rule you give them? They break them inevitably somehow. They find a way to do it, right? Because that's what happens uh, inside of us because of sin. And so what God is actually doing, every time he gives a law, he's creating more sin and sin actually increases. But as sin increases, what also is increasing? God's grace. And that for every child of God, his grace is poured out on every infraction over and over and over again. So he says the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Number four, to prepare Jewish culture for Jesus' first coming. Why did God give them the law? Because he was building a microculture in the Jewish people that would prepare for the Messiah. Here's what Galatians 3.19 says. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions, and then here's the, here's the phrase, until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. Who is the descendant? 
Jesus. This is like Bible answer one-on-one in church. The answer is Jesus, right? In Galatians uh, 3.24, he says this, the law had become our guardian until Christ. It protected us and it pushed us to Jesus Christ. That was its goal. So that when Jesus came, the law would fulfill and find its ultimate purpose. Number five, God made the law to make people desperate for Jesus. Anyone under this law would realize their absolute inability to keep it and they would be desperate for forgiveness. And so God gave this law so that the people would realize what is already inside of them and they would become desperate for a savior. Question number four. Is it true that the Old Testament law is broken down into three sections, moral, ceremonial, and civil? How many of you have heard this before? Right, none of you, one of you, okay, good. Um, So basically, uh, this would be a, a category to help people understand law. So there are moral laws, ceremonial laws like sacrifices and whatnot, and civil laws like how the government is supposed to run. And so what would happen is that uh, people started to break the law up, Christians did, so we could try to make sense of different parts of these. And so what started to appear would be this teaching um, that uh, God set aside the civil law and the ceremonial law, but has upheld the moral law, okay? And I wanna just be clear for a moment, this is where the question about the 10 commandments comes in. So now here's the question. Does God expect you to obey the Ten Commandments and be under that part of the Old Testament law? Initially, we want to say, well, yeah, because they're good. But here's the deal. Um, the Jews never made this distinction. This is, this is a Christian distinction. It's not a Jewish distinction. The Jews never had this category of moral, ceremonial, civil. Now, is it a bad distinction? No, it's just not one that they thought in. When, the, when Jesus set aside the law, I want you to hear me, he set aside all of the law. Every part of it, the Ten Commandments included. I know it's so hard. But then what he did is he gave us a new law. This would be the teachings of the Gospels and of the Epistles, the letters of the New Testament. And we start to see that there is a new law. And here's some good news for you before you all freak out and walk out. Nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the new law, in the new covenant, in the New Testament, okay? So there was an old law. It is done. There is a new law, and there are nine of the ten of them. In fact, Sabbath is the only one that is not repeated in the same way. You might be saying, that's Looney Tunes. How can I possibly make sense of that? Let's talk about Canada for a moment. I think you'll understand. Uh, I could use Mexico, but Canada's a lot easier. So, um, uh, so I want you to imagine you're in Canada, and you're under the loving authority of Justin Trudeau. I know it's your dream come true. And so you're under their laws, and you, uh, there are some basic laws in Canada, which we can agree on. Don't murder, okay? You murder you go to jail, don't steal, right? Canadian laws, it's not all anarchy up there in the north. And so what happens is um, this law is real. Now here's one of the things that, that American law and Canadian law have in common. They're both built on a Judeo-Christian ethic morality view of the world, okay? That is the foundation of them. So are there gonna be similarities between the two? The answer is absolutely. So I'm in Canada and I decide I'm gonna murder you. Um, can I be prosecuted in America for that murder? What's the answer? No, because I'm under Canadian law. I want to steal your money. Can I be prosecuted in America for that stealing? And the answer is, of course, no. So I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving. And now I cross the border. And the moment I cross the border, something happens. I am no longer under the authority and jurisdiction of Canadian law, but I'm under American law. And I'm now accountable to American laws, American system of government. This is the new reality that I am under. 
And, and so Jesus is the border, okay? When Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, he is the border, and that is where we went from old law to new law, mosaic law to the law of Christ, the law given to Moses, now the law administered through Jesus. And there's a line in the sand. This law, this old law, it is done, but there is a new law. But here's the deal. The same lawgiver that gave the law of Christ, is he not the same lawgiver that gave the mosaic law? So would you not expect the same heart and values and morals to be evident in both of them? And the answer is, of course, yes. That's why I can get up and teach on the Ten Commandments, but every time I teach on the Ten Commandments, I need to make sure everyone in this room is clear. You are not under law. You are under a grace. You are not under old law. You're under the law of Christ. And when we teach on Sabbath, that's the one of the Ten Commandments that we have to take quite a bit of a different nuance on because Jesus even fulfilled that law perfectly and it means something different. That's another sermon for another day. Ask a Q&A question and we'll go there for that one. So are we under the Ten Commandments? No. But are the Ten Commandments reiterated in the new law? Nine out of ten of them are, for sure. Are they good and holy and right? Absolutely. Were they good and holy and right back then? Yeah. But who would ever want to go back to Canada when you came to America, right? All right. That joke is going to get deeper and deeper the more you think about it. <laughs> Finally, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It means two very simple things. Number one, he obeyed it perfectly from the heart. Not just the externals, but the internals. Jesus obeyed every aspect of the law flawlessly. But number two, he accomplished the purpose for which it was created which was to prepare for him. Can we be crass for a moment? I'll give you uh, an analogy of this. Um, the Old Testament law, it's like a Kleenex. Once you use it, it has fulfilled its purpose and you throw it away, correct? Is the Kleenex good? Yes. Did it serve its purpose? Yes. Do you reuse it? Well, no. <laughs> Q-tips. I love Q-tips. Whoever made the Q-tip is a genius, right? Q-tips are created to be used. They have a designated purpose for a specific period of time. And then what do you do with the Q-tip when you're done? Please tell me the right answer, throw it out. You throw it out. Toilet paper, no, we're done, I won't go there. But you get the point. There are things that God creates. They have a specific shelf life. When that shelf life is up, when they've fulfilled their purpose, they are now able to be set aside, not abolished and destroyed and nullified as if they're meaningless, but set aside and respected as a good thing that is no longer applicable in this new season of the grace of God. It's a very different, uh, we'll just say, uh, understanding um, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And now that covenant is set aside. It is good, it is holy, it is righteous. It is to be studied, it is to be poured over, it is to be known, it is to be understood. But hear me, as a believer in Jesus, you are under the new law, you're not under the old law. You're under the law of Christ, you're not under the law of Moses. And if you wanna be under the law of Moses, you break one aspect of that law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Under the law of Christ, it is the law of grace. It is a law where you will mess up, but the grace of God is poured on your heart and your soul over your account every single day and every moment of every day. I wanna read you Colossians chapter two, verse 13 and 14. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses. This is your sins. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically meaning this, your heart and your body are all broken by sin. Everything is just, you're dead. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Welcome to the age of grace instead of the age of law. 
Every one of your trespasses has been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The demand of the law is perfection. Jesus nails it to the cross, says it is finished, and he pays the price for us. He pays it for us. He obeys for us. He is righteous for us. And now, now we get perfection and righteousness in Christ legally because of him. We enter into a new law and under this new law, God gives do's and don'ts and this and that. And are you gonna obey that law perfectly? What is it? Please say no. No, thank you. You are not perfect. Christians who say you're perfect are wrong. Uh, You're not perfect. Everyone who lives with you knows that you're not perfect. But grace is poured over you every day. Almost sometimes it feels like every 15 minutes or even more. Point number two in your notes, Jesus nailed the law. Here's what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, I'm gonna tell you something. It's gonna blow your mind and you legalists, it's gonna drive you crazy. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Have you ever heard the phrase jot or tittle, right? That's the King James version of this. Uh, let me just show you what these things mean. Uh, when he says iota, he's, he's referencing in the Greek language to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is yod. And that's on the left. It's just the smallest, most insignificant uh, in terms of size letter. And here's what he says first. Uh, not one single jot, not one single yod, not one single iota. It, every part of God's word is infinitely valuable and true and precious, and we don't even set aside a comma, basically. That's what he's saying. But then he gets even even more more specific. He says jaw or dot or tittle, and here's what that means. There's two Hebrew words, is the resh and the dalet. And the only distinguishing difference is that little part that goes over it, as you can see in the picture, it's this little insignificant, the smallest thing, it's called a dot or a tittle. It's this little thing that goes over like a T, if you will. And he says even this, even these insignificant parts of the word of God are so perfect and awesome, not one part of them will go unfulfilled. In fact, I will double down on every single part of this law. You say I've come to abolish it? Every part of the word of God is true and accurate. We talk about inerrancy and inspiration. We don't don't say the Bible is generally true, but there's some errors. Here's what we say, because Jesus believed this, that every single word of the Bible came from the heart and the mind of God was preserved for his people, every part of it. We can't even set aside a comma a jot or a tittle, nothing. Every part of it is sacred. So we defend the inerrancy of all scripture because Jesus defended that, even down to the nuances of these seemingly insignificant things like a jot or tittle. Here's what he says. Notice the preposition, until. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So let's ask the question. Until heaven and earth pass away, have heaven and earth passed away? The answer is no. So why isn't the law still in force today? But then he has another tempering statement. It's basically saying this. Look, whatever comes first, whether heaven and earth pass away or the purpose of the law for which it was created is accomplished, everything will be fulfilled. What Jesus doesn't tell them in this moment is that ha-ha, the days of the law are almost over because I myself have come to fulfill them. Heaven and earth will not pass away before this law is set aside, not abolished, set aside. I am gonna fulfill these. But he doesn't tell them that right here. You kind of gotta read on in the book of Matthew to get that. So this point, here's what I imagine Jesus does. I imagine Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he looks at the Sadducees, and he says this. Therefore, 
whoever, <laughs> Pharisees and Sadducees, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's what's gonna be happening. I want you to just catch this. He's calling out the Pharisees because they were setting aside parts of the law. And if you're a common person listening to Jesus, here's what you're hearing. Okay, so you're telling me, Jesus, that not even the Pharisees and the Sadducees are good enough to be called least in the kingdom? Then how are we ever, ever gonna get in if they can't even get in? And then he says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, who could possibly be great if not even the Pharisees and the Sadducees could do this? And I think Jesus probably has this little joke in his head. He's like, it's me, guys. I'm the great one. I'm the one who obeys them. I'm the one who fulfills them. You're, you're looking at yourself, and it's me. But he doesn't say that yet. He doesn't say that yet. In verse 20, he just puts the nail in the coffin. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, your obedience to the law, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, it can't be on par. It has to exceed it. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Talk about a bummer. And at this point, they're like, then no one's in. Then no one can do it. Because even the scribes and Pharisees have errors. Even they need sacrifices on their behalf. And if our, if our requirement is to be perfect, as Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, as your heavenly Father is perfect, we're done. We've got nothing. Literally nobody's gonna get in. The kingdom of God is gonna be empty. And now Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. That's the point. Following laws will never get you there. It's impossible. You literally can't do it.